If you have your Bibles this morning, let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 2. And as we open up, I'd like to give a brief preface to this morning's sermon. We're actually going to be pausing from our examination of Philippians 2. There's something I want to show you in Philippians 2 prior to us going outside of Philippians. But we will be taking a quick break, just, just one, one Sunday. One of my hopes and goals is to be faithful in expositing the text, verse by verse, word by word, sentence by sentence. And that still is my goal. We'll jump back into Philippians next week. But I want to examine this morning a very interesting theological topic. If you look in Philippians 2, verse 9, Paul says this. So last week we explored Jesus' humiliation. And as you know, this week and next, we'll explore Jesus' exaltation. And if you look in verse 9, it says this. Therefore God has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted Jesus Christ. The Father has highly exalted his Son. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take that verb, exalted, and I want to examine it as a theological topic, a broad theological topic. What I want to do this morning is I want us to examine, outside of the book of Philippians, Christ's exaltation. So last week we dealt with his humiliation, that was verses six through eight, and the way we examined it was on the basis of a ladder. Jesus descends this ladder of humiliation. He begins an eternity past with the Father, and ultimately he finds his demise on a cross. But we don't just gather to talk of Jesus' death. The gospel is more than Jesus' death. Now, central to the gospel is the message that Christ has died for our sins. But if we stop on Good Friday, if we don't get to Sunday, what good news is there? A dead Messiah is not good news. What is good news is that Christ has overcome the grave and that his payment for your sins is satisfactory. And the way we know that Jesus' death ultimately saves us from our sins is that he has risen from the dead. And we have hope as Christians. We have tremendous hope. The gospel ends on Sunday. It starts on Friday. It starts with his death. But it goes to Sunday. And we celebrate a risen Lord We have a message of good news, of hope. We don't end on Friday. We have to go to Sunday. And we don't end with his humiliation. Paul doesn't end there. Paul discusses Jesus' humiliation in Philippians 2. But then he ultimately goes to Jesus' exaltation. And I want to capture this vision of exaltation. Whenever we say that Jesus is exalted, whenever Paul says that the Father has highly exalted him, What does the whole scripture teach? What does all of scripture teach with reference to this topic? So we're going to pause from examining Philippians 2 and we're going to investigate and discover 
all of what Scripture teaches about Jesus' exaltation. And I ask this morning for your special attention. We're going to be going to a number of passages. This might be the the sermon where we do the most Bible drills, examining certain passages. And I ask for your patience and attentiveness. I really want us all to see where in the Bible I'm getting this from. I want you to be convinced because you see it in Scripture and not just because I teach it. So this morning, we are going to discover exaltation, and we're going to use a ladder again. So in in Jesus' humiliation, he descended a ladder, and there were four steps that I said were on this ladder, four rungs in this ladder. Jesus' preexistence, his incarnation, his death, and ultimately his death on a cross. Now we're going to use another ladder, but this ladder Jesus does not descend on. He ascends. He is exalted on. And I'm going to try to keep some symmetry between last week's sermon and this week's sermon. Just as there were four steps last week, we're going to examine four steps this week. So where do we begin? This is a difficult question to answer. But prior to us going to the ladder, we have to ask another question. And this is the first point. This is the first question I want to tackle this morning in relation to Jesus' exaltation. Write this if you take notes. How is Christ's exaltation possible? How is Christ's exaltation possible? And if this point kind of, if you don't really get this point, let me explain the problem. And the problem is a problem that we touched on last week. When we say that Jesus was exalted, we run into this problem. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Jesus is divine. Now, the problem is this. How is it that a divine being can be exalted? Aren't I not suggesting that God can change that God can be improved upon? Pastor, isn't one of the basic affirmations about God, of which we sung, that God cannot change? Yes, that is true. It is true that God cannot change. So then how as Christians, how is it that we can affirm that Jesus, being divine, can be exalted? How is it that Jesus can mature? How is it that Jesus can make progress? Pastor, I thought that a divine being was perfect by nature. Does does God the Father make Jesus more perfect? That's the question. And the way we answer it is very similar to how I answered the question last week of Jesus' humiliation. How is it that God can die on a cross? A similar question, a very similar question. And the answer is the same. When we affirm that Jesus is exalted, we are affirming that Jesus is exalted on the basis of his humanity. When we affirm that Jesus is exalted, we we are affirming that Jesus is exalted on the basis of his humanity. Jesus is both God and man. And as a man, Jesus 
can be exalted. He can be humiliated. He can die. And he can also be exalted. Jesus can mature. He can make progress. He can be exalted to a position that he had not at his birth. So that's the answer. And to show you this in Scripture, to show you Jesus' need for maturity and therefore the possibility of his exaltation. Turn with me to Luke 2, 51. Luke 2, 51. Jesus was both God and man. And as both God and man, Jesus could develop, he could mature, he learned, and he could also be exalted. Luke 2, 51. And he, this is Jesus, and Jesus went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, dear friend, if you've read that verse before and you've kind of had a hard time understanding it, how on earth is it that Jesus, being a divine being, can increase in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man? How is that possible? Well, the reason why it's possible is because Jesus was like us in every way except sin. I know maybe some of you, whenever you read this passage, you'll say, well, yeah, I know that's what it says, but he didn't really do these things. He did. And this verse paves the way for his exaltation. This verse paints a picture of in his human life, in his earthly life, that he matured. And as a man, we all have this capacity. We all have this ability, this potential. And Jesus achieved this potential to an infinite degree. He was obedient to the Father, and therefore the Father has highly exalted him as the God-man. So it's very important. And that paves the way now for us to discuss exaltation. The reason why it is possible for Jesus to be exalted is because Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is exalted on the basis of his humanity. Now, second point. The first point, that was a tight point, very quick. We have a lot more to cover. And the second point is going to cover a lot of ground. And the second point is this. What is Christ's exaltation? What is it? What is it all about? So the first question was, how is it possible? And the second question is, what is it? What is Christ's exaltation? So where do we begin, dear friend? Going back to this ladder, a ladder of humiliation, what we started at the very top with Jesus being divine. Where do we begin? Where does this ladder of exaltation begin? What, after Friday, after Jesus' death, and before Sunday, before his resurrection, where was Jesus? Where was Jesus on Saturday? What was he doing? We have to start there. That's the question that we ask. 
and we have to start there. And the answer that I'm going to propose this morning is not an answer that all Christians agree about, and you might not agree. But I do believe the point that I'm going to teach this morning is supported by Scripture. Where I believe Jesus starts on the ladder of his ascent, of his exaltation, is I believe that Jesus starts at the place of the dead. On Saturday, what I believe Scripture teaches is that that day, Jesus descended to the place of the dead, to the abyss. In our passage this morning that Pastor Jesse read, he ascended to the place of Hades. So on Saturday, Jesus descended here. Now, to show you where this is in Scripture, besides the passage that we read this morning, turn to Romans 10, verse 6. I want you to be convinced, not by what I say, but by what the testimony of divine Scripture is. Romans 10, verse 6. Paul writes this, we'll go through verse 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or verse 7, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul, what Paul is saying here in this passage is this. Faith does not and cannot bring Jesus down from heaven. And also, faith cannot bring Jesus up from the dead. Paul is saying that faith is a response to Jesus being in heaven and Jesus being from the dead. Faith is a response to what Christ has done. Faith cannot enact these realities. Faith is a response to these realities. So that's what Paul is saying. But I want us to notice, where is Jesus in this passage? In verse 6, where is he? He is in heaven. We believe that right now Jesus is, is in heaven with his Father. And what Paul is saying is that our faith cannot bring him down. Our faith cannot bring him down here into this earth. But then in verse 7, Paul mentions this place called the abyss. And then Paul says, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now to bring someone up means that Christ is below. But what is this place that he is in? This place is the place of the dead. This place is the abyss. In between Friday and Sunday, prior to his ascension, prior to his resurrection, after his crucifixion, Jesus descends by means of his soul into the abyss. Now when he does this, he does not go to suffer 
for our sins. He does not go to the abyss, to the place of the dead, to experience hell. That's not what I'm teaching this morning. What he goes to do in the abyss is that he goes to proclaim the gospel. 1 Peter 3 mentions this. And also he goes to rescue Old Testament saints who were in Abraham's bosom and to bring them with him to heaven. And he goes to conquer the forces of evil. Central to what Jesus has done is he has vanquished the powers, the demonic powers that rule in this world. And that in his descent to the abyss, in the first point in this ladder of ascent, Jesus descends where all people were held prior to his death. And he goes and vanquishes the powers, the satanic powers that rule in this world. Revelation 1.18 mentions that Jesus has the keys of both death and Hades. In the ancient world, keys were a symbol of authority. And what Jesus did is he descended to where death and the abyss reside, and he took from them their power. And that power is symbolized in keys. And now Jesus has those keys. And now Jesus has the power over death and Hades. So that's where he starts. That's the lowest rung on the ladder, but he does not go to the abyss to suffer. He goes to conquer and proclaim his victory. That's our first step. The second step, now the second step is something that we all have to agree on. If you don't agree with me about the first point, that's fine. That's fine. The second point, we have to agree. After Saturday, Come Sunday, after Jesus' descent into the abyss, Jesus' soul rises to his body. In his body, he receives a new body, a glorified body. And the moment his soul reunites with this glorified body, that is what we refer to as the resurrection. Central to our faith is the resurrection. You cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus ascended from the tomb, came out from the tomb bodily. This is central. And we get a better picture, we get a good picture of this idea in 1 Peter 1. Turn with me there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'll read through verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What I want you to notice this morning is this hope that we have as Christians. Brothers and sisters, you gotta have hope. You have to have hope. And that hope has to built, be built on something real and objective and concrete. 
something that cannot be taken away. And look how Peter describes this hope that the Christian has. It is a living hope. And the reason why our hope is living is because the person in whom we have faith in is living. And he lives now by means of his resurrection. And what this resurrection gives to us, gives to you, verse 4, is an inheritance. And this inheritance can never be taken away from you. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The hope that we have as Christians can never be taken away. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. And that will never change. And because that will never change, therefore you have a living hope. Dear friend, will you not come to Jesus and have this hope? What is keeping you from having this hope? Come to Jesus. And after his resurrection, so we have his descent into the abyss. We have his resurrection. And next, the next step in his exaltation is his ascension. His ascension. Turn with me to John 16. John 16, verse 5. The ascension is covered in some detail in Acts 1. The ascension is what happened to Jesus after his resurrection, 40 days after his resurrection. Luke describes that in the period of 40 days, Jesus visited the disciples and taught them many things. And after this 40 days, Jesus was taken up bodily into heaven. That's what the ascension is. And this is essential. But it's hard to understand what is the theological significance of the ascension. What does the ascension bring to us? How is the Christian life different that Jesus ascended? What is the theological underpinning of the ascension? And in John 16, verse 5, Jesus tells us, But now I am going to him who sent me. Now Jesus' reference here is not to his death or his resurrection. It's to his ascension. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now in verse 5, Jesus mentions going away. In verse 7, he mentions going away. This going away is the ascension. In his earthly ministry, Jesus promised that he would not always be with his disciples. Jesus is not here on earth bodily. The Bible says that he is at the right hand of God the Father. 
Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, verse 7, It is to your advantage that I ascend. Now, how could it be advantageous for us that Jesus is not here? How could that work? Well, Jesus explains to us, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This helper, this word for helper, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is that it's coming time for him to go away to the Father. It is coming time for him to ascend and no longer be here on earth. But he says it's advantageous that he does this. And the reason why it's advantageous for us and for the disciples is that when Jesus ascends, he will pour out his Spirit upon the disciples, Acts 2. And what the Spirit does for us is that the Spirit moves us into a different dispensation of God's administration here on earth. In the Old Testament, the saints did not have the Holy Spirit like you and I do. The Holy Spirit is a tremendous gift. And it's hard for us to realize what, the, what it's like to be a follower of God and not have the Holy Spirit. But that was the reality of the Old Testament saints. The Spirit had not come. That occurs in Acts 2. So through Jesus' ascension, he moves us into a new era of experiencing God's blessings. And that era is marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit ushers us into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Now, it isn't that the Old Testament saints did not have these realities. They did. But not in the way that you and I do. And it's by means of the ascension that we receive the Holy Spirit. If Jesus had not ascended, we would not have the Holy Spirit. The last point on the ladder, his descent, his resurrection, his ascension, and where does it end? Where does this all end? When Jesus ascends to the Father, over and over and over again, Scripture says this, that he is seated on a throne. His last step in his journey of exaltation is his enthronement, his enthronement. Go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 11. What a powerful passage this is. Verse 11. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What the author of Hebrews is teaching here is he's comparing and contrasting the ministry that the Old Testament priests had and the ministry that Jesus had, specifically with reference to offering atonement, for offering sacrifice for sins. And the author plays on this notion of standing and sitting. Verse 11, these priests offer repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again. And what do they do? Right at the beginning of verse 11, it says that they stand daily. Now, what this standing is signifying is that their work is never done. They have a job still to do over and over and over again. They must continually offer sacrifices. Their work is never done. And what signifies that their work is never done, that the sacrifices they offer are not sufficient to take away sins, is the fact that they stand daily. Now look at Jesus Christ. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The reason why the author is saying that Jesus sat down is because the sacrifice that Jesus offered actually took away sins. Jesus now rests in heaven from his priestly duty of offering sacrifice. And the reason why he rests is because his sacrifice was sufficient. It was sufficient to take away your sins. And how many times did he do this? He did it one time. For all time, one sacrifice can take away your sins. And that sacrifice was the priest himself, the eternal priest, Jesus Christ. And to signify the completion of his priestly duties of offering atonement, what Jesus has done is he has sat down on a throne in heaven. And that signifies his rest in the completion of his purposes in the plan of salvation. We have this ladder. Jesus descended to the abyss. He was resurrected. He ascended. And now he is seated in the heavens. All of what I'm talking about this morning, if you haven't been listening, listen now. Jesus' ascension, his exaltation, signifies that he is Lord. And by Lord, what I mean is that he is master. He is the sovereign one. He is king. What his humiliation signified was his love and his service. 
and his sacrifice and his plea to you to come. And what his exaltation signifies is not his service and his plea, but his reign and his command to you. The notion that Jesus is ascended and that now he is king means that he is Lord. And it means that what he says in your life, you do not have an option to disobey. You must obey the risen Lord. And oftentimes what we want in the Christian life is we want the benefits of his death. We want the benefits of his humiliation. Yes, Jesus, save me from my sins. But we do not want the obligations of his ascension. We do not want the responsibilities that come with him being Lord. We try to separate Jesus being Savior and him being Lord. It's a package deal, dear friend. And out of all the people who could highlight this truth for us this week, listen to this, this little story. I am not a fan of this singer, but I know he's very popular. Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Now, I do not support everything Justin Bieber does, and I don't listen to his music. However, something has happened in Justin Bieber's life. And this week, he gave an interview. And in the interview, the interviewer asked him, what has changed in your life recently? I guess Justin Bieber took a pause from the music industry, and he's just now beginning to enter back in. And listen to, what Je- well, listen to what Justin Bieber said. This is what changed for him. Following Jesus is actually turning away from sin. There is no faith without obedience. I had faith that Jesus died on the cross for me, but I never really implemented my faith into my life. There's no faith without obedience. There's no getting the benefits of Jesus' death without the obligations of his ascension. There is no getting Jesus as Savior without the demands of him as Lord. And there is this tendency all throughout the Christian church to take one part and not the other. And dear friend, because he is Lord, we have no other option. Jesus does not give you suggestions in your life. You cannot live any way you please. If you say that Jesus is your Savior, you must also live as if he is your Lord. Because he is. And his exaltation proves that. And we cannot separate his humiliation from his exaltation. We cannot say yes to one and no to the other. Dear friend, what Jesus as Lord means is that you must follow him. 
following Jesus means saying no to sin. Faith demands obedience. And dear friend, I do not know where you are at in your walk with Christ. But I imagine many of you are not living a way that honors Christ as Lord. And you must. Jesus is not just Savior. He is Lord. And his ascension, his exaltation, proves that. Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that he descended to the cross in his humiliation. And by means of his exaltation, he went to the abyss, he was resurrected, he ascended to your right hand, and he is now seated, and he is Lord. Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the truthfulness and the weight, the utter weight of the idea that Jesus is Lord. Convict us of sin, Father. Move our lives to repentance. And we pray that we would both honor his humiliation and his exaltation. In Christ's name, amen.